If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to be reading verses 9 through 27. It is also on your scripture sheet if you want to refer to that. Hear the word of the Lord. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Word of the Lord. This is our second Sunday in this chapter, and there's so much symbolism, and symbolism all through the book of Revelation. But it is difficult here in the 21st chapter 
to really just in a couple of Sundays get to the depth of this chapter and the wonder of this chapter. So if you weren't here last Sunday, I would encourage you to go online to our website and listen to last week's message. Uh, the preacher wasn't much, but the message was, was really blessed of the Lord. And it will help you to understand this uh, morning more fully if you'll go back to that prelude and uh, listen to it. Before, as always, before we come to this passage, let's pray and ask the Father to teach us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we gather as your priests this morning. We have striven this week to be your prophets out there in the Mid-South, to be salt and light for the gospel for Christ. But you've also called us to be priests, to come before you and intercede for the world around us. We come this morning thanking you for how you've answered our prayers, how you've answered our prayers as priests for our families, for our brothers and sisters here in Christ, at Christ's covenant, for how you've answered our prayers concerning illness and sickness and hurt. Our Father, we come this morning to pray for Mike McNanus as he has surgery tomorrow. We pray that you would bless that surgery, bless everyone associated with that surgery, that they'll see and hear what they need to see and hear to do what needs to be done. I pray that you would give him a calm heart, a heart of peace. I pray that, Father, this surgery would do what it's designed to do, keep him from any complications. We pray for Elizabeth Mednikow, that you will bring healing to her in body and soul. We pray for David Rulin, Father. We thank you for how you answered our prayers about his surgery. And we pray that there would be no complications and that he would heal very quickly. But now, our Father, we intercede for ourselves. As we open your word, our Father, we will not be taught unless you speak through the power of your spirit. John Sartell cannot teach so it makes any difference in our lives. Father, you know that's not just religious rhetoric on my part. I know that. And these people know that. And so we pray together. Father, we've heard you before in this room, week after week. And we've run here this morning, Father, wanting to hear your voice. Teach us from Revelation 21. These are your words. This is your book. Oh, we're your children, Father. Children simply asking their father to tell them the story. Tell us the story, Father, one more time. For the glory of your Son, we pray. Amen. What does Jesus 
think of the church. Do you remember the first time you saw the ocean? I first saw the ocean at Nags Head, North Carolina. I was really young. My parents had told me about it, but as I stood there, I was mesmerized. I stood there and gazed in amazement. When I tried to tell my children about the ocean, I realized what my parents had realized when they tried to describe it to me. There just aren't words. There's no sufficient words to describe the sight of the vastness and beauty, the power of the ocean. So how did Jesus choose to describe his church? How did he choose to describe the people of God in glory? How did he choose to describe the people of God in the new earth, the renewed creation? By the way, I've realized something this week. In our study of Revelation, we have seen that it's a a picture book, a book just filled with visions in every chapter. It's not, and we've said this over and over again, it's not a didactic teaching book like Romans or Ephesians. It's not a narrative like the book of Acts. But it's filled with visions. It's a picture book. And this week, for the first time, I realized why. Words would not possibly explain the wonder and the mystery. Words could not capture the astounding, astonishing, dazzling sights. These awesome sights that we've seen in Revelation 21 of the new earth, the renewed earth. So Jesus, in chapter 21, did what he's done all through the book. He showed John interactive visions to describe the new heavens and the new earth. Look at verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw, we've read those those words over and over and over again. I looked, I saw. It's in every chapter. What did he see? A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. In that first verse, John states the theme of the entire chapter. He spends the, after he gives the theme, he spends the rest of the chapter describing in detail the new heaven and the new earth. Last week, we focused on the renewed earth. You see, the saints did not come as, as Jesus returned and brought the saints that had gone before us with him, the souls of those saints, after they received resurrected bodies, they did not return to the glory, to the heaven from whence they had come with Jesus. They lived in a renewed, the picture here is that they lived in a renewed creation. A creation, they lived there as body and soul. It's not just a a spiritual new creation for the souls of mankind. 
We saw last week that there was a continuity between the old and new creation, and there was a discontinuity between the old and new creation. The new creation is fit for mankind, body and soul. That's what we see here. That's a continuity. The great discontinuity we saw was that the new creation now was without sin, completely without sin, completely without evil. Mankind no longer had even a remnant of sin nature. Satan has been removed. The Antichrist and his prophet, they're no more. The culture of sin has been removed. Look at verse 4 in chapter 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then skip down to verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. That is the second death. Think about, stay with us, think about the implications of this. There are no doctors. There's no hospitals because there is no sickness. Sickness was a result of the fall of man into sin. There's no more death. We will never, ever attend a funeral. There's no police departments. There's no courts. There are no prisons. There's no anger, no hate, no prejudice, no cheating, no stealing, no murder, no rape, no war, no arrogance, no lying, no deceit. What is the great discontinuity? There is no sin and no evil. Ah. Maybe you're saying what I say about this chapter as I've looked at it in the past. But the metaphors here, the metaphors in this chapter seem so confusing. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, we did not talk about that last week in detail, but I told you we would because verses 9 and 27 address those metaphors. I mean, stop for a minute. What, what is this new Jerusalem? The city is described in exacting details. In the verses we read this morning. One of the angels of judgment who poured out one of the bowls, seven bowls, comes to John and says, Come with me and I will show you the bride. I'll show you the wife of the lamb. Well, John accompanies him to a high mountain. And what did he see? Look at verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, immediately you say, hold it, stop. I thought he was to show John the bride. That's what he said he was going to do, the wife of the lamb. Well, folks, that's exactly what John is seeing. Go back to verse 2. And I saw the holy city, 
the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepares a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem is the bride of the Lamb. And the bride of the Lamb is the new Jerusalem. This is Jesus describing his church, his people in glory. These are symbols. The new Jerusalem is not. Now listen to me, this is important. The new Jerusalem is not the city in which the church will dwell. Let me say it again. The new Jerusalem is not the city where the people of Christ will dwell. The new Jerusalem is the church herself. The new, the, 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 the new creation, the new Jerusalem, is not the city where we'll dwell. We are that city. The church is that city. Every part of it. What is Jesus saying then as he gives John this picture? Gives us this picture. This is a church that spans the ages and the nations and the civilizations. This morning, we confess that we believed in the Apostles' Creed, that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, did you notice that the word Catholic there is not capitalized? We're not saying we believe in the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Look it up in the dictionary. The word Catholic means eclectic, all-embracing, wide, universal. It means the church of Jesus Christ that spans the ages, nations, and civilizations. Look at verse 12. Where do we get this? It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So you see, you have the saints. The city has the saints of old, has the saints of old Israel. It has the saints of the New Testament. They're included. It's together. It's one people. Remember in, in Revelation chapter 4 where John first saw heaven in all of its glory. And he saw the Father's throne there in chapter 4. And around that throne were 24 other thrones. And 12 of those thrones were for the tribes of Israel were for the patriarchs of Israel. And 12 of those thrones that made up the 24 were for the apostles in the New Testament. So as you see this vision of this new creation, what is Jesus saying to John? Jesus is picturing his church, a church that's from all times, Spanning all the ages, spanning all the nations and all the civilizations. Secondly, the city is vast, built on the foundation of God's word. Look at 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. 
The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. That's where we get the word stadium. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measure, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation of the wall of the city, foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Folks, you've never seen anything like this city. I don't care if you've been to Tokyo and New York and London. They're nothing. They're little hamlets compared to this. 12,000 stadia equals 1,400 miles. So this magnificent city was 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, and 1,400 miles high. In John's day, it would have covered the area from Israel to Spain, from Africa to northern Europe. Notice that it's built on a bejeweled foundation. Why does he mention this foundation a second time? He's already mentioned in verse 12, and now he mentions it in 14, and then again in 19. Look at 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Paul had written about the church that God was building in Ephesians. He spoke to the Ephesian church about it. I want us to pretend for a minute that, that Paul is here speaking to us this morning. And he's telling us what he wrote the Ephesians church. And it's what he would say to us. Look what he says. So then you are no longer. He's speaking to a church that is made up primarily of Gentiles. There were, there were Jews there. But this, the, the congregation was mostly Gentile. And you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It just, it's a parallel to our passage this morning. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? In him you also are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he says there, the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles. Now the apostles' names are on the foundation of the city. Of this city. What did the apostles and the prophets in, in Israel, the tribes of Israel, were on the walls. Their names were on the walls. What did, what did those prophets in old Israel represent? What did the apostles represent? They spoke the word of God. They wrote what God the Holy Spirit revealed to them. The foundation of the church, whether it's the church in glory to which we're headed, or whether it's the church here or the church in Ephesus, the church is built on the foundation of God's Word. That's our foundation. It's not John Sartell. It's not the leaders of this church. It's the foundation. Our foundation is the Word of God. We sing a hymn frequently here at, 
and we'll sing it over and over again. How firm a foundation. It goes, the first verse, how firm a foundation you saints for the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you have said, to you for refuge, to Jesus have fled. Notice in verse 19 that this great foundation, who does this? I mean, if you go down in your basement and look, the foundation of your house, do you have any jewels there? Do you have any diamonds? Do you, do you have any gems down there? Inset in the wall? Well, look at verse 19. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, and he goes on. Brian, you did a great job this morning with the names of the jewels. You must have had some experience with this. Those valuable jewels inlaid into the foundation speak of the preciousness of the revealed word of God. Is that how you look at Scripture? Honestly. This was powerful to me this week to understand. I had to say, John, is this like gold to you? Is this like diamonds to you? Is it that precious to you? It's the difference. The word of God, the gospel is a difference between life and death. It's a difference between life and death, not only in my life, but in my family and your lives. What, what does anywhere where we've seen the work of the Antichrist, whether it was in the first century or in this century, what is the first thing that's done? Scripture is destroyed. Scripture is taken away. Before they burn the churches, they'll remove the Bibles. It's the word of God. It's the foundation of the church. That's the picture here. The city is vast. This vast. Have you ever seen a city? 1,400 miles wide and long. Jesus is picturing his church spanning the ages, the nations, and the civilizations. The city is vast, built upon the foundation of God's word. Now, these points speak of the vastness and glory and wonder of the church, of the new Jerusalem. The new creation. But there's another image we have, another symbol we have. Remember, come and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. The image of the church, the people of God being the bride of Christ. I struggled some with the new Jerusalem. How, what's this all about? But then I really struggled. And I had... For many years, I struggled with the image of the church being the bride of Christ. What does that mean? In the Old and New Testaments, the people of God, it's not just in the New Testament, the people of God are pictured as the bride, the wife of God. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, what did God say of Israel when she wandered off and followed other gods, when she wandered off and worshipped idols? God called her an adulteress. God called her a prostitute. She was committing adultery. Why? Because she belonged to God. Why are the walls and foundations filled with jewels? Why are the gates made of one pearl? 
because the new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. The bride's always dressed. The bride's always dressed in this wonderful bridal garment and gown. There's always jewels involved. And here's here's the church, the bride of Christ. She's bejeweled. What is Jesus saying? And what does this mean? Well, ask yourself, what's the main characteristic of marriage? What's the main characteristic of marriage? What's the main characteristic of that thing that exists between a husband and wife? A close, intimate relationship. When the church is pictured as the bride of Christ, the main emphasis If you go back and look in scripture, the main emphasis is on a close, intimate relationship. Look at Revelation 21, verses 2 and 4. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you see it? He just speaks of relationship. Well, God, in those verses, just states that relationship. He just states that relationship. But in the verses we read this morning, the intimate and close relationship is pictured in the vision Look at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So where is God? Where is God in the new Jerusalem? Where's the temple so we can go and worship him? He says he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he himself is a temple. His presence permeates. There's no temple. You walk around looking for a temple in this huge city, 1,400 miles this way and that way. Where's the temple? The temple is everywhere. God is there with his people, with his bride. There's a beautiful picture of that intimate relationship that is set before us in verse 16. And most people will miss it. Look at verse 16. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. The city, this city, the new creation is pictured as a cube, perfect square cube in every way. In the temple, What was the most sacred place where God met with his people? The Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies. It was the most sacred part of the temple. No one went into that room. No one in Israel except the high priest, and he only went one time a year. He went with incense, representing the prayers of the people of God, For all that year, he went with a blood sacrifice, blood to be poured out on top of the mercy seat. It was the great and holy day 
of atonement. This was a small room shut off from the rest of the temple by that great veil that was ripped the day Christ died because he went to the real holy of holies. The room only measured a few feet, but by God's direction, remember he was the architect of the tabernacle and the temple. By his specific direction, the holy of holies was a cube. It was four square, measuring the same width, length, and height. In the vision before us this morning, the new Jerusalem is four square. It's a cube. The entire city, that's what God is saying, the entire new creation. Is the Holy of Holies. It speaks of the intimate relationship between Jesus and his bride. The whole city that is close to Jesus. Now, we've got to bring this to a close. This is not just a message to make us look forward and say, wow, what is that going to be? What is this? This is just incredible. That's a powerful message to this fallen world. And I'm looking forward to that day, especially after this week and reading this. However, this is a powerful message. Remember when he gave it? He gave this 2,000 years ago. And he was giving it to the church in a fallen world. Not only to look forward to, but he was giving to the church in this world. Why? Because there's a continuity here. Today, God dwells with his church. He really does. Jesus said that where two or three gather in his name, he would be there. That's his promise. He's kept it. He's with his bride today. What happened at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit of the living God fell on the church. We've all seen and felt some aspect of the glory of God where we've gathered for worship over the years. We've, we have known it in this room over the last year. It's just a pale shadow of a coming day when the glory will be seen and known in a way we've never seen or known it before. But still, there's a shadow of it, and you know it. Um, we still, we have, we have something of it today, enough to make us look forward to it. Enough to bring us back here week after week after week. Because we know God is speaking. We know Christ is at work in our lives, in our families. The walls of this church, of Christ's covenant church, are solidly built on the foundation of God's word. That's the same. We're fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. That's what he told the Ephesians church and that's what he's saying to us. The great gates of this city are there. Remember at the three gates on each side, 1,400 miles on each side. And there are these gates for people to enter, and they're open. We pray every week, oh, Father, bring the world in to hear the gospel, to hear God's word. Wherever there's a church, the doors, there was a church that... A friend of
father pastored for years. And it was called the Church of the Open Door. Those doors are always open. That's what we pray for CCRC. The measurement and shape of their church. We're not, we're not perfect. But we are vast. The church today is vast. I want to call your attention in closing to a scripture in Zechariah. This will be the last scripture we see. Zechariah chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. What's happening here? Zechariah was a prophet in the time of Jerusalem's rebuilding. Remember, they had been in Babylon for 70 years. Jerusalem and the temple had been left in rubble. It was just, there wasn't, there wasn't anyone living there. I mean, the weeds were growing in the street. There wasn't one stone left on another stone. But a remnant after 70 years had returned from Babylon. And the city was being rebuilt from scratch. The temple was being rebuilt from scratch. What would everyone be talking about in Zechariah's day? The old folks there that could remember would be talking about what Jerusalem used to be and what the temple used to be. And the young people that were building the new one were saying, this is what we want it to be. And then there had to be. It had to be the naysayers, the discouragers who said, well, it'll never be like it once was. And God gave Zechariah a vision pertaining to the matter. And Zechariah saw a man in his vision with a Stanley tape measure, a huge one. And Zechariah asked him, where are you going with that tape measure? He said, to measure Jerusalem. Now, there had been an angel present with Zechariah, and another angel showed up on the scene and said, go catch that young man with a tape measure. Measure Jerusalem? That's a joke. How would that be possible? You seriously think you can measure the city of God? Let me ask you a question. When John wrote this, and he has this vision of what it was going to be when Jesus returns, do you think he could have imagined that the church of Jesus Christ would, would surge through the Middle East, through Europe, through the Americas, through Australia, through Asia. Do you think he envisioned what we've seen of the church in our day? In the remotest parts of the earth, we see, we see and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our text this morning, finally in showing the, the church in glory, the presence of God permeates Every square inch of that city. It's like being in the Holy of Holies. That is one reason God gave John these visions. We've seen it through Revelation. He was not just saying one day this glorious end will become a reality. He was pointing John to the church in every age to remember who they were. 
Even in this fallen world, he's calling us to remember who we are. And that's what we've seen this morning. Now we'll come back to the title. This is what Jesus says about his church. Let me say it again. We ask a question. Jesus, what do you think about your church? And he's told us. So what is your view of the church? Is that how you view Christ's covenant church? I've been in the ministry 50 years. And I'm astonished at the low view of the church that the world has? No, that's not what I'm talking about. Of course the world has a low view of the church. Always have and always will if it's the church of Jesus Christ. I'm astonished at the low view of the church that we find prevalent in the evangelical church today. You see, it's not only where we're headed. We have some taste of it here today and now. And it is precious and it's powerful. It's time to come to the Lord's table. And we're going to sing what we've just heard this morning. Glorious things of thee are spoken. Number 345.
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said,